Welcome, everyone. I'm Gary McKillops, and this is Sports Across the Board. Our guest today is Bill Curry. Bill's a two-time Super Bowl champion who played 10 seasons in the NFL, primarily with the Packers and the Baltimore Colts. He participated in Super Bowls 1, 3, and 5, and played for legendary coaches Vince Lombardi and Don Shula. As a coach himself, Bill was the head football coach at Georgia Tech, Alabama, and Kentucky, winning the 1989 Bobby Dodd Coach of the Year Award. He also was the head coach at Georgia State University when the school launched its football program in 2010. He joins us today from his home here in Atlanta. Coach, welcome to Sports Across the Board. Thanks so much, Gary. It's uh, great to be back home with you. You've had many influencers in your life, and having listened to some other podcasts that you've been on and interviews, one of the most important people, as it is with many of us, is your father. Tell us a little bit about him and and why he was such an influence on you. Well, my dad um, grew up with uh, a very difficult scenario. He was an only child, lived in Athens, grew up there, graduated from the University of Georgia. When he, and he was a sickly kid, his parents wouldn't let him go out for rough sports. And so he was at the doctor's a lot, and uh, he got tired of that. When he was a senior in high school, he sneaked out for football. He described himself as a 5'11", 142-pound defensive end. Uh, who just he had never been challenged like that and he loved it so as a part of that he walked down to the ymca there in athens and ran into a a wonderful coach who showed him a barbell set first time he had ever seen an olympic barbell set four years later he was the national light heavyweight champion in the three olympic lifts he was a national champion weightlifter at a body weight of 191 he just he just could absolutely um, focus and work himself into being whatever he wanted to be. So he became a great champion in, in weightlifting. He became a hand-to-hand combat instructor um, at Fort Benning in the United States Infantry, and that's about the time I came along. So when I was a, a little fella, uh, <laughs> life was very demanding under his auspices. He later became a Presbyterian Sunday school teacher, and he was just as intent and loving at that as he had been rough and demanding in his other roles. And uh, I got a chance to see both sides of him, and I saw him mellow and mature through the years. So he was he was a great example at first of how not to do it, and then later how to raise a child and how to be a champion at whatever you try to do. And uh, he always wanted me to do a better job in the weight room, but I kind of rebelled, and it was it was it became a joke with us late in life that he was never going to get me to get in there and pump iron the way he did. He was just great at that stuff, and that was kind of uh, fortuitous because weightlifting now is a big deal when it comes to football. Well, he was way ahead of his time. He said that he, everybody should be lifting all sports, and people laughed at him. And then he would say, I was a base, I wanted to be a baseball pitcher. I wanted to pitch for the Yankees. And so I was a little league and a high school pitcher and uh, just loved baseball. And uh, he discovered that Bob Feller lifted weights. And that one nailed me. I, I couldn't say much. <laughs> if Bob Feller was lifting weights, then we probably all should have been doing it. So I probably went and lifted for a few months after that. There you go. Let me read you a quote here and see if you recognize who this is from. Referring to you, he says, he's handsome, he's a leader, he's got character, and he's the best speaker in college football today. But calling offensive plays, he's terrible. You can understand it, though, because <laughs> as a center, he spent most of his life looking at the world upside down between his legs. <laughs> you know who that was? Yeah, I, I know exactly who that was. Yeah. That was that was Coach Robert E. Lee Dodd. Uh, <laughs> right. The worst, Bobby Dodd. The worst chewings out, and, and I'll be I'm using correct language here because we've got a mixed audience. <laughs> but the worst uh, chewings I ever got—I mean, real face-to-face tirades—did not come from Vince Lombardi or Don Shula. They came from Bobby Dodd, and it was—and they came after I was the head coach at Georgia Tech <laughs> because uh, he thought that 
my, our, our play calling was terrible, and, and it was, and he thought that I was killing the guys on the practice field, which I was. Uh, I said, so I was trying to defend myself, and I said, Coach, uh, you know, I love you, and I, I played for you, and your practice schedules were were fine, but I also played for Don Shula, and he was much more demanding on the practice field, and I believe in his system. He said, well, let me ask you something, uh, Don Shula Jr. Uh, <laughs> when you were playing for the Baltimore Colts, how many chemistry labs were you going to? Oh, and how many times were you staying up till 2 a.m. to study for a calculus final, terrified that you were going to flunk out of this incredibly difficult school here? And, oh, by the way, you're not Don Shula. <laughs> <laughs> And then he then he said something I never forgot. He said, let me tell you, Bill, you're killing those guys on the practice field. Your guys are not winning because they're tired on Saturday. I know this stuff. You back off. You change your practice schedule. I'll help you do it. And I promise you, you'll start winning. And that's exactly what happened. There you go. Yeah. And you had some great success at Georgia Tech, particularly toward the end, which kind of pro- propelled you to uh, what Alabama was the next stop, right? Yeah, and that was a shocking development for all of us. It, uh, it, it's still kind of hard to believe, and it's a very complicated and long discussion to try to figure it out. But Coach Dodd was anxious for me to go to Alabama and take our message to this to the Southeastern Conference that you could win championships and graduate every player. And that was always our goal. Uh, he was obsessive about that because he had played at Tennessee, and his first lecture to our team every year was, "Man, my record at Tennessee as a quarterback was twenty-seven and one, but I'm still a third-quarter sophomore." And I'm he was fifty-something years old that time when I played for him, and he would say, "That is not going to happen to you because you're going to go to every class." And then he made sure we went to every class. <laughs> if you ever skipped a class. You're in deep trouble. So uh, he had a huge impact, and uh, he didn't mind uh, telling me that I was unqualified to be doing stuff like that. But then when the Alabama thing came along, he was very anxious for me to go and try to do that. So he really thought you were ready then, right? Yeah, he he thought so, and uh, that was a that was a compliment. The whole thing was. Uh, such a shocking development in the first place. It's it's a long, complicated conversation. To, and we don't have time to get into it today, but I've got a lot of wonderful friends at Alabama and at Kentucky, all the places we coached, and especially at Georgia State. Um, everybody was wonderful down there because everybody wanted, uh, wanted a team. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, that was... Uh... That was an incredible turnout by the students when I, I guess it was a student vote that helped put that over the top. Football would have never happened at Georgia State unless the students had voted themselves an increase in the student athletic fee. That doesn't happen ever. I mean, that was a miracle. That gave us $5 million a year to begin to operate. We didn't have a football. We didn't have a chin strap. We didn't have an office. We didn't have a practice field. But we were able to go buy the things that we needed uh, piecemeal year by year by year because the students had voted themselves this increase and it is a large student population really large now mm-hmm. and uh, i'm eternally grateful to for the students because not only did they do that but they were also constantly supportive upbeat cheerful even when we weren't winning they were uh, they were they knew that eventually that Georgia State would be a really good football program, and it is. Was it an advantage or disadvantage playing in that huge Mercedes-Benz dome when you first started? Well, it wasn't Mercedes-Benz. Oh, that's it was, right. It was, it, was the, the, uh, it was the other dome. It yeah, was the right. antiquated, the older dome. Mm-hmm. Um, it was an advantage if we had a big turnout like we did for the first game. It was a disadvantage if if we had a, a small crowd and it, with with the 
kids that go to Georgia State, a lot of them had to work on the weekends. I mean, a lot of them would, would come by and see me and say, Coach, I apologize. I'm not going to be there Saturday, but I got a job. I have to, I work at a restaurant. And that's all, that's the way I pay my way through school. So you got a, a population of students that are working. Um, and, and so when, when we had small crowds, I thought that the, the, the cavernous, place was was not an advantage but when there was a a lively crowd it was a great it was a tremendous thing Mm -hmm. i think you were six and five in that first year and uh played among others alabama and i'll never forget that uh, al wilson run what he went like 80 yards or something was a kick return albert albert wilson yeah Yeah. no 97 yards touchdown (laughs) um and it, it moved us within uh 55 points of the <laughs> opponent. <laughs> but um, that was the interesting thing. Um, our trainer at Georgia Tech w- was a guy, when I, when I was coaching there, was a guy named Bill McDonald. And he was from Alabama originally, but he was the head trainer at Georgia Tech for us. Great person, great trainer. Well, he went to Alabama with us when we, we took the job over there. And then he was so good. He got promoted and ended up doing all kind of things for Nick Saban, uh, serving as uh, in, in one area of uh, scheduling. So he called me that first year. He said, would you guys like to come over here and play? I said, McDonald, you finally lost your mind. Why don't you go get some counseling or something? <laughs> and I, I'm going to hang up on you now. He said, no, no, wait, just a minute. Let me mention one other thing. And he mentioned a monetary figure. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, excuse me, well, when do y'all have an open date? <laughs> Count me in. <laughs> and then I really thought I had a job to do to uh, to get my guys to not be terrified. And instead, during warm-ups, they're coming up to me with tears in their eyes uh, saying, Coach, thank you for bringing us over here. We're so excited to play these guys. And we did get beat badly, but we played hard and valiantly and our guys have, have thanked me through the years for taking them over there and, and they they have the, that experience and of course Albert Wilson enjoyed it more than any of us mm-hmm. oh yeah now he went on to play pro ball didn't he for a short time played the NFL for, played the NFL for a long time and he now he now he was a foster child and he now has um, all kinds of um, camps and things four foster children down in the, in the Miami area. He's a wonderful person. Oh, terrific. Uh, we had a lot of great, great young people on those teams. Mm-hmm. And really, that's what it's all about. And I, I'm afraid sure is. these days we're beginning to uh, lose that perspective. Um, not to jump around too much, but just thinking about some of the things that are going on in college football today. You have this mess at Northwestern. I guess it was Stanford had some problems, even Georgia, with the speeding issue with their kids. What, what's going on? Is this, a, is this a whole new world of college football? Well, there's not a whole, it's not a whole new world. Think about this for a minute. You're responsible for 105 teenage males living in downtown Atlanta 24-7, 365. Do you think some things didn't happen when we were at Georgia State? and at Georgia Tech and at Alabama, things happen in all these programs, and they happen a lot. And a Northwestern coach is a dear friend of mine, and I assure you, whatever was going on in that locker room was not something that Pat Fitzgerald uh, knew about. Uh, and, and so the guys who are bitter toward him have decided they're going to get him, and they and they were successful. Unfortunately, maybe he missed something. I don't know, but he didn't instigate anything like that. I assure you. And even the, the ones that are the, the most vicious with their charges all say, even when he was a player, he didn't he didn't participate in that stuff. And as a coach, uh, they uh, you're going to be held accountable no matter what. So I I don't know. And and but to think that there's an outbreak of criminal behavior um, that's never happened before on college campuses, we've always had some guys that are going to test the limits. We've always had to 
drop some players. We try to do it quietly. It happened at Georgia State. Mm-hmm. We had some guys that acted out. They had to go. Mm-hmm. Um, we tried not to embarrass them publicly, but they were not going to be on our team. And, and in fact, the first one that, that I dropped from the squad was the first week of, of practice mm-hmm. that, uh, at Georgia State. So um, I'm not saying we, we certainly didn't have anything as pronounced as other uh, programs that are that are being publicized now. But um, when the when the coaches start getting paid ten million dollars a year, they're going to be held accountable at a much in a much finer, detailed way uh, than if you're making sort of normal wages. Mm-hmm. What about this hazing thing? Is that something that's pretty much routine, but not to the extent like they say it was at Northwestern or some other places? Was was that kind? Of, is that kind of common with football teams? I played football for 20 years. I never saw one incident of hazing. Hmm. In high school football, college football, several colleges where I coached, four NFL teams I played on. There were some (laughs) troubled guys that tried to be tough guys and rough you up on the practice field. You just had to, that was mostly in the NFL. You just had to measure up and uh, take the guy on. And there were some cheap shot artists and also in the NFL, but the the players in the league have a way of dealing with those guys. But I never saw any hazing, uh, and I, I don't I don't know what happened at Northwestern, but I assure you, uh, it wasn't as bad as a lot of people are making it look. Hmm. Let's switch back to uh, your career, and you uh, went to the pros. You were drafted by was it Green Bay right away? I was drafted as a future uh, by the Packers, and um, I have never received any communication from them. My brother-in-law called me early one morning and said, Hello, Green Bay Packer. And, and you, I hung up on him because <laughs> I thought he was messing. He was always messing with me. And he called me back and said, You better pick up a paper. The Packers have drafted you in the 20th round. Well, they only had 20 rounds. Today they only have seven rounds, but uh, in those days they had 20. And I was, I did not know that the NFL was holding a draft. I was so utterly unengaged with the NFL that I didn't know they were having a draft. But uh, Vince Lombardi had turned to his personnel man, who loved to tell this story publicly, and he had said, to, the guy's name was Pat Pepler, and he said, Pepler, it's two in the morning. We've drafted 19 players. I'm exhausted. I'm going to bed. Do something humorous for the 20th selection. And he walked off. And so that's how I was drafted by the Green Bay Packers. (laughs) And, and of course, (laughs) that led you to being a player for the legendary coach Vince Lombardi. And what was that like? That I mean, everybody hears stories about Lombardi. There's been books written about Lombardi. But you were actually there. What what was your experience like? Well, let's start with the good stuff first. Okay. He was he was harsh. He was hard to deal with. He was very very demanding. All those things are true, but he was also um, incredibly forward thinking. In that he had a lot of strong suits. Obviously, he knew a lot about football and about repetition and about teaching principles to a, a group of headstrong men but there was no racism in his locker room no anti-semitism no misogyny ever and if you started talking racist stuff in that locker room you were gone within a few days and everybody noticed there were teams in the league that didn't have african-american players and wouldn't accept them lombardi had more than anybody i think we had 10 on a 40-man roster when when I played for him, but he would have had 40 because he didn't care what color your skin was. He cared if you could play football. So what did that do in the locker room? What did that mean? That meant everybody that was there was only there because he had earned a spot, not because he had white skin or because he had a southern accent or because he came from New York, uh, the Bronx, where Lombardi said he really loved New York. Uh, No, he was... Whoever was there was there because we had earned a spot. 
everybody knew that and there was a kind of a mutual respect that really changed my life it changed the way i saw everything because when i got there i had never been in a huddle with an african-american person ever and it uh, again my perspective absolutely changed and we learned that what a team is is a bunch of folks that accept each other no matter where they come from or what they look like or how they think uh-huh i know uh I have a friend who is a season ticket holder with the Falcons. And he said the thing he enjoys most about seeing a pro football game is that you run into all different kinds of people, all races, yep. colors, creeds, uh, you know, workers, day, uh, day workers to, uh, you know, executives. And it's a wonderful thing. And in many respects, then, the NFL was ahead of baseball certainly ahead of Jackie Robinson, maybe not time-wise, but in terms of uh, the development of African-American players. So it's it's certainly a credit to what you're talking about here, of how coaches have uh, taken that as a a responsibility. Well, I think the ones who uh, have have watched Lombardi and how he did things, it was so obvious. And, and, uh, And there were great human beings on that team. And both black and white, uh, Willie Davis, Bart Starr, people like that that were just incredible leaders, also Hall of Fame football players. And Willie Davis took me under his wing. I thought those African-American guys would run me off because mm-hmm. I had a Southern accent. I didn't know how to act around them or anything. And they did just the opposite. They embraced me. They taught me how to act. Um, I, I was afraid I was going to say something racist, and I did. And uh, instead of just uh, slapping me in the face or blindsiding me on the practice field, they sat me down and said, now, Bill, don't say that. Say this and this and this, and you'll be okay. And I'm I'm eternally grateful. I I still thank those guys when I see them. That's great. You were an undersized center. You've called yourself that. I guess you were, what, 205 or something like that? To 235. 235, okay. Yeah, you could get by with that in those days. You couldn't today. I'd be a water boy today. <laughs> yeah, there are monsters out there now. But yeah, what was your role in the power sweep, the big, the you know, the most famous play that Vince Lombardi had? The center's role was important. Well, everybody's role was important, especially play side, but... Uh, center had to make a call most most teams played what's called a 4-3 defense meaning they had two big tackles defensive tackles lined up on the guards noses and they had a middle linebacker about three to three and a half yards off the ball he was directly over the center the center had to decide whether or not to block the middle linebacker himself and have the the uh, tackle to play side blocked down on the defensive tackle or if the defensive tackle was lined up tight then the center could reach him it's called a reach block and you literally turn your head and shoulders and go across his body and you make a call so that the tackle would block down on the middle linebacker you had to make that call every single time we ran the power sweep it was critical Mm. because those two guys those two guys could uh figure in hitting the uh, play in the backfield otherwise so um, that's what I remember most about that and you better not miss that call you better not mess up because you had to watch the films with Lombardi block and you literally turn your head and shoulders and go across his body and you make a call so that the tackle would block down on the middle linebacker you had to make that call every single time we ran the power sweep it was critical because those two guys, those two guys could uh, figure in hit, hitting the uh, play in the backfield otherwise. So um, that's what I remember most about that. And you better not miss that call. You better not mess up <laughs> because you had to watch the films with Lombardi on Tuesdays, and that was just such a fun thing if you missed blocks. <laughs> I can imagine. So, who were some of these uh, defensive guys that you had to go against? The the, the ones that were the most formidable, I guess. Uh, the most formidable guys were guys like Dick Butkus and, um, and Joe Green. 
Merlin Olson, Alan Page, Deacon Jones. I had a dear friend from Georgia Tech named Maxie Bond, who ought to be in the NFL Hall of Fame. He went to nine Pro Bowls. Great player, great guy, great friend of mine. But he called the defensive signals for the Rams. Normally, Deacon Jones was a defensive end. But we went. We were in the Coliseum getting ready to play them one day, and he came trotting over during warm-ups. He said, I got a little surprise for you today. Uh, like I said, he called defenses uh-huh. uh, for, the, for the Rams. And about the third series, I lined up, and I didn't, I didn't have that middle linebacker in front of me. I had Deacon Jones in front of me, right on my nose. <laughs> and that was a long, long afternoon. Those guys were just superhuman. Those guys would play in any generation. The rest of us have some inadequacy. We wouldn't be good enough to play against these big, fast guys today. But the great ones like like Deacon Jones or Dick Butkus or Merlin Olson, um, Joe Green, they would play in, in any generation. Mm-hmm. The fearsome foursome was, uh, was something. Yeah, that was that's that that was the day. Those were the days of the fearsome foursome. I guess it was Olson who uh, Merlin Olson who uh, caused that injury, right? That, that essentially ended your career. Yeah, he did, and he felt so bad about it. Um, when they came to it, when I had finished playing, I was coaching at Tech, and the Rams came to town. We had Merlin out for to our house for dinner, and he looked up on my wall. And NFL Properties made these beautiful plaques, and you could buy them, and they were the team emblems sort of done in bronze. And I had a Packer one and a Colt one. And he looked up there, and he said, where's your Ram?" Because my last year, I actually went and played for the Rams mm. on the same team with Merlin. Uh, he said, where's your Ram plaque? And I said, well, I was only there one year, and I really wasn't much. By then, I was washed up, thanks to you. Uh, <laughs> 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 he, he didn't mean to do it, so there was never any hostility. He sort of nodded, and he sort of jumped on me for not having it a ram plaque and about two weeks later in the mail came this big box and i and i still have that ram plaque that merlin sent me and i, I treasure it one of, one of the great players and one of the great guys ever in the national football league he went to 14 consecutive pro bowls think about that for a minute that's incredible yeah incredible you had some incredible people on your team uh we could probably spend the whole podcast talking about guys like Bart Starr and Jim Taylor, right? The running back. Uh, yeah, Jimmy was there. Yeah. And uh, Boyd Dollar, was he, he was a receiver? Boyd was, Boyd was very prominent. Yeah. yeah. He was a great receiver. Yeah. One of the things that's, that's interesting comparing that time to this time is this uh, situation with the running backs. I mean, they're becoming not non-existent, but it's not a big part of the game plan anymore. What's going on? One of the wonderful things that happened to me through the years was the Fellowship of Christian Athletes and um, and certain powerful individuals that were active in that uh, faith group. One of them was Tom Landry, the great coach of the Dallas Cowboys. And Coach Landry just took me under his wing, and when I was trying to learn how to be a head coach at Georgia Tech, getting chewed out by Coach Dodd. I called Coach Landry because he'd always been so nice to me. He had been my coach in the senior bowl. And I said, Coach, could we just spend a few minutes? Could I get some some of your time? Because you started a, a team, and we're sort of essentially trying to start over at Tech. He said, well, why don't we do this? Why don't you come to Dallas and spend a day with me? So he was just so wonderful. And I got to spend time with, with Coach Landry, and we bonded, and we had a friendship. So years later, uh, after I had been coaching for quite a while, uh, and I knew that he was getting older, I just wanted to talk to him one more time. And on an impulse, I called him one day, and I said, Coach, what do you see in football? What do you think is going to happen next? What's, what's your idea? He said, well, as you know, I've always been a, a huge proponent of the running game, and he always had great backs. Um, he said, I, I think that the emphasis on the run is going to change. Now, this is this is in the late 80s, early 90s. That's how long ago it was. Mm-hmm. 
He said, I think that's going to change. And I said, what do you mean? Yeah, running game's going to change? He said, I think it's going to change to rhythm passing. These these players, these quarterbacks and receivers are getting so good. They work so well together. Precise timing with rhythm passing is a lot better way, a lot more a lot less wear and tear on everybody to go down the field and there'll be more receivers. So they just predicted all the things that are happening today, many, many years later. And of course, one reason he was so successful is because he was so smart. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, um, not too long ago, of course, Jim Brown uh, passed away. Did, did you yeah. play against him at all? Kind of like toward the end of his career is when you were starting, right? My rookie year, we still had the college all-star game. Mm. And uh, the college all-stars would be selected and then would practice for three weeks and play against the NFL champions. And uh, my year was, I think it was the last time the Browns won the NFL championship. Mm. And it was Jimmy Brown's last year. So I didn't, I wasn't on the field at the same time he was, but I was, on the team against him. Mm. And we, we played the whole season. Um, and then the Browns and the Packers played for the National Football League Championship. This was the year before the Super Bowl started. Mm-hmm. And I was a rookie on, on the team, obviously. And uh, the last game of the year was against the Browns in Green Bay. We beat them for the NFL Championship. And that was Jimmy Brown's last game. Mm-hmm. So I, I, te- I was on the field. I wasn't on the field playing directly against him, but I saw him. You know, I was in awe watching him play on the other from the other sideline. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I grew up in Cleveland and saw him many a time. And uh, oh wow, I'm in. Well, the... he was not. Go ahead. He was not a regular mortal. <laughs> he wasn't a regular mortal. Neither was Jimmy Taylor. By the way, they were both incredible players, and and, and both of them were incredible people. I got to know Jimmy Taylor well playing with him, and then I got to know Jim Brown a little bit years later, and I was very impressed with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm in the camp of Jim is the goat, <laughs> the greatest ever, uh, and I know. Oh, I think he probably is. Yeah, I think so too, and uh, a lot of people feel the same way. Well, it was uh, after the Packers that you got traded to the actually to the New Orleans Saints, who then sent you to Baltimore, which I guess was a pretty fortuitous move, right? I was just crushed when Lombardi uh, put me on the expansion list. Well, he had to. You had to put three guys on there, and that was a team of great players, and I was certainly not a great player. So he he put me on there. The the Saints claimed me, uh, and then – about three weeks later, I get a phone call from somebody claiming to be Don Shula. And I almost said something smart because I thought it was one of my buddies messing with me. Everybody knew I was crushed to be put on that list. Uh, it was just my ego. Uh, I blame Lombardi, but it wasn't his fault. It was my fault. But anyhow, I, I'm getting this strange phone call. And at the last minute, I just decided, you know what? I better play it straight. This might actually be Don Shula. <laughs> well, it was. Mm. <laughs> he said, Bill, look, we're thinking about working you into a trade. And uh, what he really wanted was that number one draft choice so he could get Bubba Smith. But they, they were talking about throw-ins for the trade, and I was one of those. Mm. And he said, here's my question for you. Um, I know you've been starting for the Packers. But uh, we like the way you play on special teams. Well, Coach Don had made all of us learn how to play special teams. So I, sure enough, I covered kickoffs and punts and snap for punts and all that sort of thing. He said, would you be happy coming to Baltimore if we trade for you? Would you come? And even if you're just going to play special teams for me. And I said, my response was this. Coach, I would walk to Baltimore to play for you. <laughs> <laughs> so I got to play for, and Coach and Coach Shula saved my career. I, I owe him every. I owe Coach Dodd and Coach Shula everything. Mm-hmm. Well, I I know Shula from the uh, days with John Carroll. Uh, well, actually, I was after him, but I graduated from Carroll, and he would come back occasionally for alumni events. And the stadium now uh, at John Carroll is named after Don Shula. 
Oh, so, good. That's wonderful. Yeah, he's uh, he was a great influence on the uh, on the school and on the program. And boy, I'll tell you, we miss him too. He's another another legend, to say the least. Huh? Yeah, we're uh, we're losing our legends, and it's just uh, I, I'm, I I miss those guys every day. I really do. Mm-hmm. How uh, different was he than Lombardi? They they always talk about Lombardi being so tough, but Shula was no, uh, uh, you know, cupcake. <laughs> His practices were twice as hard as Lombardi's. I mean, I was stunned when I got to Baltimore. I mean, we stayed on the field five hours a day, pads both times, both practices, and then special teams work forever. Uh, and he beat. Uh, and he, by the way, he's the winningest coach in the history of the NFL. And I think one of the big reasons is because of his emphasis on special teams. He spent a lot more time than any other coach that I played for other than Bobby Dodd. Dodd and Shula were the masters of the special teams, and that's how they, that's why they had such good records, in my opinion. Shula, his practices were twice as hard as Lombardi's. He was just as demanding as Lombardi, but you could get him to loosen up and chuckle occasionally if he was in the right mood or sometimes somebody would try to crack a joke in the huddle and we had one guy that could monitor Shula Danny Sullivan and Sully would stick his head and say don't do it today he ain't he ain't in a good mood <laughs> okay so everybody shut up but you could get Shula to laugh a little bit in team meetings and on the practice field, whereas Coach Lombardi was strictly business. Mm-hmm. I just got along really well with Shula. And, of course, he went on to Miami and had that undefeated season, which I guess yeah. part of that has to be luck. But, uh, you know, no, n- not to take away from his coaching skill because he was unbelievable. But it hasn't happened since, has it? No, it hasn't. Almost, but it hasn't happened. What do you think of uh, Belichick? A lot of people are saying, well, you know, Brady's gone. Belichick has kind of fallen on hard times. How does he rank up there? He ranks way up there. I'm, I'm a little biased because he's another friend of mine. <laughs> uh, Maxie Bond, I mentioned earlier, became the defensive coordinator for the Baltimore Colts. They, they were still in Baltimore in the 70s, and they were leading the league in defense. And I, I went through Baltimore and stayed at Maxie and Diane's house. And uh, I, I said, I was complimenting him. Gosh, it's wonderful. You guys are leading the NFL and, and, and defense. And he said, well, and I, I said, it must be your genius. He said, no, it's not my genius, but we do have a, a genius that comes over and helps us. He comes over and studies film and he, he's able to find things that I would never find. He finds things that nobody else can see. And he's oh. just a kid, and we don't even pay him. I said, well, where does he come from? He said he drives over from the Naval Academy uh, three times a week or something like that. And I said, what's his name? He said, Belichick. <laughs> Belichick was stealing himself and preparing himself for these moments 50 years ago. Hmm. And uh, he will find a way to excel again if, if he's given time. What speaking of coaches, a lot of people ask about what happens at halftime. Uh, Peyton Manning said something earlier about, "Gee, we never did much. We just walked in, kind of rested, and maybe a few words exchanged, and then back out on the field." What's what's the difference between a college halftime and a pro halftime, and, and what what happens? Well, in college, maybe especially in a place like Georgia State, maybe you got some big mistakes that have been occurring. And uh, you quickly get on the board and get those corrected and make sure you get them right. But in the NFL, the greatest halftime speech I ever heard was when Lombardi, we were getting killed in Detroit, uh, 21 to 3 at the half. And we go into halftime, everybody's sweating bullets, just terrified because he's going to rip us verbally, uh, which he was so good at. And uh, he didn't show up. And we sit there and sit there. And there's about a minute and a half left in the half and we're about ready to go back out to play and we haven't seen our coach he steps he steps out of the dugout we, we were playing at old tiger stadium he steps out of the dugout and uh eyeballs every single one of us so it seemed like he got eye contact with all 40 guys and here was what he said men 
with the Green Bay Packers, and he turned around and walked out. Now, I'll let you guess what happened in the second half. <laughs> you guys came we around. Ran, we ran the Lions out of their stadium because we, he didn't have to tell us your religion, your family, and the Green Bay Packers. He didn't have to tell us any of his euphemisms because they were hammered into us every day. All he had to do is remind us of who we were. So the geniuses know exactly what to do at halftime, and it's different times, different things at different times. Uh, us regular folks have a hard time with halftime. I never was sure that we did a great job in the halftime stuff. So that rah-rah mentality of um, giving these big pep talks is not necessarily something that's done all the time. What about pregame? Is is that an important part of what you do, or can you take a low-key approach Well, it can there? be. It can be. I think if you've got a young team, if it's if it's something like what we had early at Georgia Tech and at, and at uh, Georgia State, then, then you might need to get the guys stirred up a little bit to get them going because they may be sitting there halfway intimidated by who they're playing. Uh, but I think that's a, a thing that uh, the coach has to feel, and it's different things for different coaches. Um, but the most overrated thing in all of football is a, a halftime speech and the pregame speech. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't they don't mean much. Yeah, because it wears off pretty quickly, I guess. Even for that's the first time that when Merlin Olson hits you in the mouth with his forearm, the halftime speech is out the window. <laughs> yeah. Even if we're Newt Rockney giving it, it probably wouldn't mean that much after. Well, maybe if, maybe if Rockney was giving it, you'd remember it. I don't know. He was pretty good. <laughs> yeah, he was. That's true. A couple of stories about Johnny Unitas. Some think greatest ever quarterback. And he certainly dominated his era. What, what do you know about him? I know a lot about him. Uh, this is going to confirm our uh, just our, the conversation we just completed. <clears throat> every every single week in Baltimore Memorial Stadium, our defensive captain Fred Miller would give this impassioned pitch to the defense, and we're going to knock their teeth out and rush the passer and all that. And he'd look over, and when he finished, he'd look over, and our offensive captain, John Unitas, would be leaning up against the door. We, we played in Orioles Stadium, so we had to go out this tunnel and go out the dugout and out onto the field. So he's standing next to the door with his legs crossed, kind of smirking. And Freddie says, every single Sunday, he'd say, John, you got anything to say? And Unitas would look around that room. He'd get eye contact, just like Lombardi did. And this is what he would say. Talks cheap. Let's go play. And he'd turn around and walk out the door. And we'd follow him out. And whoever we were playing that day was already beaten. They just didn't know it. I mean, nobody could beat us in that stadium. Mm-hmm. And I think his way of handling that was a big part of it. And you said when they were introducing the players, he was always introduced last, right? Yeah, yeah. It's the only time I ever cried on a football field, but I did it every time. If the, if the offense won the toss, then they would introduce the center first, and you'd be out there standing on what we call astro dirt, when we played <laughs> on our field was dirt, uh, and uh, they so the that center number fifty, Bill Curry from Georgia Tech, and I'd run out to the fifty yard line, and then peel over toward our bench and set up the huddle and then they would go through the lineup and each guy would trot out to midfield and come over to the sideline until 10 guys had been introduced and then they would go to the 11th and and the announcer would say and ladies and gentlemen from the university of louisville number 19 and that would be the last thing you would hear you couldn't hear any, and, and people measured the decibel level. It was like two jet engines. It was the loudest stadium sound in America at that time. Mm-hmm. And by the time he ambled out to midfield and waddled over to the huddle, everybody had tears in their eyes, and nobody and nobody was going to beat us. Mm. He, he was that powerful. His presence, it wasn't ever his words. It was his presence. I can remember. 
the NFL and Cleveland, actually, Art Modell had these preseason doubleheaders for a few years. At one of them, Ernie Davis was introduced, and everyone in the stands realized that at that time, Ernie Davis had leukemia and didn't have much time left. He was drafted by the Browns. He was going to be Jim Brown's successor. It was between those two games that they introduced Ernie Davis, and you're mentioning about the the crowd noise. I, I don't think I've ever heard anything louder than the applause for Ernie Davis when that uh, when he was announced. It was an incredible. Everybody moment. everybody loved Ernie Davis. Mm-hmm. He was such a wonderful person, and we lost him too way too early. I never got to meet him. Absolutely, one of the the greats. I think he was out of Syracuse too, along with he was. Uh, you know, he was little and of course Jim Brown. Uh, and another memory that uh, you've jogged is that I did a uh, football game with Johnny Unitas. He was, uh, as you know, he played semi-pro football in Pennsylvania, I guess. And he was a big semi-pro football fan. Anyway, he came up to Johnstown, New York when I was doing semi-pro games. And uh, he sat in for a half and did some color. So it was great to meet him. Yeah, I know. It was just incredible a, so, that's incredible <laughs> and Stabler did that too he he came up one time I think that was part of a promotional thing or something but anyway so those were great uh, great times and great great memories yeah they were both both those guys were great guys just regular guys mm-hmm. absolutely okay well moving along just uh, going across the board on some um, quickies here the NIL situation Name, image, and likeness. Players are now able to cash in on that. It's been a couple of years. Things are evolving. And I don't know, for the better or for, for worse, what's your opinion? Worse. I think uh, I think it's spun, it's out of control. And I think, that, of course, there's been cheating. People have been buying players for 100 years. Mm-hmm. Now it's legal. but, but now, And now the IRS... Uh, is getting involved and changing what, what is 501c3 and what is not, or they're making that obscure. And I don't, I don't know that that's an accurate statement, but that's the way it looks to me. And uh, bottom line, it's a nightmare for the coaches, a nightmare. And worse than that is the transfer portal. Mm-hmm. So you're asking me what's going to happen. I have no idea, but I do know this. We got two NFLs now. We don't have college football anymore. Yeah, which is a sad thing. It is a sad thing, but it's uh, we're America, and we let the dollars get away. And as soon as coaches started making eight, nine, ten million dollars each, the players started looking at the fact that they couldn't buy a pizza for their girlfriend, and started saying, "Whoa, wait a minute! There's something wrong about this. They're not stupid. We yeah. educate them to be smart, and then we act like they're they're crooks if they want to get paid to mm-hmm. do what they they do." When people all around them are just uh, raking in the cash, uh-huh. they, they're Americans. They're going to do that's exactly what happened in the early 70s in the NFL. I know because I was president of the union mm-hmm. and we tried to go on strike for the very kinds of things that these players are being rewarded with. So it's uh, it's life in America, but it's not good. It, it is tough for to, to assemble a team and keep a team spirit, that sort of thing when somebody's getting a million dollars and you're a lineman, you're getting $20. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Were you um, president of the association when the strike occurred? When they had those scab players and all that? I sure was. Mm, That had to be a tough time, huh? It was a very tough time. It was was, um, was a great education and uh, I, I made a promise at my house at my home i will never run for office for anything ever again as long as i live i I promise (laughs) that makes sense (laughs) it's not a good place to be at times uh what about all these conference changes now back in your day was tech part of the sec tech was in the sec up through my junior year and then coach dodd pulled us out It's it's a long long story uh there's a there's an article i forget where who what publication it's in but there's an article last week all about 
Texas uh, dropping out of the SEC, and I was there when it happened, and uh, it's it's too long to try to tell now. The Tech did drop out and then got back in the ACC in 1983, many years later. Mm-hmm. So, but now it's it's huge. I mean, all the the movement has been incredible compared to just that one team going to the SEC, or there may have been more, but but right now you have some quantum leaps. What do you think of that? Yeah, we'll follow the dollars. Just mm-hmm. to understand that this is America, mm-hmm. and we're seeing it in our Congress, I mean, in spades, and we're seeing it in football, we're seeing it in all the other sports, we're seeing it in the entertainment business. Uh, everybody is going to maximize the system to try to get the most dollars out of it. And that's that's the society we've created. And so don't expect the athletes to be any different or the athletic directors or the presidents. Mm-hmm. Final the question. NCAA, NCAA is just uh, forfeited its uh, authority. Mm. Yeah, I was going to bring that up too. But is sports as good as ever on some level? I mean, can you still as a fan appreciate it as much as you did back in the day? Well, I appreciate the, the programs that are trying to do it right, and I know that Georgia State is and Georgia Tech is, and I'm really proud of that, and, and a lot of others are too. I just don't know their programs well. And so I support those programs the best I can, and uh, and I really pray that uh, the young people that come there are still encouraged to get their degrees rather than transfer three times and mm-hmm. try to maximize spending money I, I just hope that happens but i think it's going to be far more difficult yeah and you're still consulting is that correct well a, a little not nearly as much as i once was mm-hmm. um, there's something about turning 80 <laughs> you're sort of put out to pasture and that's okay we're not complaining about that there you go and but your wife is still very involved carolyn is uh, involved oh, in some... she's still writing books yeah she's tr- she's unbelievable she's a she's a genius and she's <laughs> also beautiful and i love her more than ever and it's it's fun just to wake up and see what she's gonna do every day <laughs> there you go well this has been terrific by the way, by the way she's a georgia state phd oh really dr yeah. dr curry that's terrific yep. all right well hey this is great i could go on all day and uh you know i wish we had more time and maybe we can do it well again we sometime. can we can do it another time i'd be glad to that's terrific thanks very much bill appreciate it thank you okay. have a good day i'm gary mckillips our guest has been bill curry and this is sports across the board You've been listening to Sports Across the Board. Join us next time as we take you behind the scenes on everything from the big events and the big issues to discoveries that are changing the world of sports. Sports Across the Board is an exclusive presentation of the McKillops Group. If you like what you've heard, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.